This is episode number 35 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. So hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Two Birth and Beyond. It's Anita Lambert and today Jess unfortunately isn't able to join us but this topic she is also very passionate about and we're both very excited for today's expert guest, Olivia Scobie. Olivia is a social work counsellor who specializes in perinatal mood, birth trauma and maternal mental health. She's also the founder and executive director of Postpartum Support Toronto a not-for-profit that provides therapy and solidarity for new parents having a tough time adjusting to life with a baby. She believes in good scotch, telling your story, and supporting families through difficult times. So welcome, Olivia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And what Jess and I first are wondering about is what really drew you to social work focusing on maternal mental health? Oh my goodness. Um, I think like most people who get into helping work, specifically anything related to social work or therapy, um, is through personal experience. In fact, I have a personal sort of slogan around like never trusting a therapist who hasn't been through depression <laughs> or anxiety because um, that sort of lived experience is really important to me. Because um, I had a really tough time um, with both of my children. Uh, I didn't know the first time that I had postpartum depression and pretty severe postpartum depression um, when my first son was born. I was pretty young. I was on the younger side <laughs> of, having, of having children. So it was a bit lost in this idea of, I don't know, like punishment, that sounds like an extreme word. I'm lost in the idea of like, well, what did you think it was going to be like to be mm -hmm. a mother as I was sort of this young single mother and it didn't really make sense on paper to have him. Um, and so it was very intense and I, I thought that I was pretty sure my life was over and I would lie in bed at night. He was a really tricky baby too in terms of um, sleeping and eating and lots of crying and colic. Uh, but I would just lie in bed at night and be like, hey God, if you could just kill me tonight, like, just make sure this kid's taken care of, like, I can't do this, and I can't bring myself to do it myself, so, like, you just need to kill me right now, um, and so it took me a long time to have another kid, so when I did, um, many years later, I knew what had happened the first time, I now had sort of a framework for understanding, uh, what had happened, um, so I was, I was prepared. And so when my second son was born, um, I was armed and ready for postpartum depression. And instead I got postpartum anxiety. So 
this time I wasn't feeling sad, but I was amped up all the time. So I had some pretty extreme postpartum anxiety, um, really struggled with sleep, really struggled with intrusive thoughts. Um, and uh, thankfully, I had a really awesome doctor. So I was able to go to them and say, I'm not okay. And instantaneously, she plugged me into a support group, um, helped me track down a great therapist, and um, had me armed with some pharmaceuticals if I needed them. Um, so I was very well supported and the experiences for me were night and day in terms of what it was like to be completely on my own, not understanding what was happening and just assuming that this was motherhood versus uh, really separating the depression and anxiety from motherhood the second time around. And, you know, those sort of things came together for me as I was figuring out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I was like, I want to support people going through this so that other people aren't left suffering uh, in the same way that I was. And I find, I thank you so much for sharing both, both of those experiences. Cause I think a lot of people make the assumption that you can't go through different types of maternal mental health um, mm -hmm. conditions that you went through postpartum depression the first time and anxiety the second time and how you said your support was different. Um, right. How did you find, so with your first, um, going through the first time with postpartum depression, so did you feel your care provider either just didn't notice it or just didn't offer support or um, it sounds like it was a different care provider, I'm guessing, than since your second one? Yeah, and it, everything was just really different. And so part of the challenge for me the first time around is that because I was young and because I was single and because I was um, not a high income, income earner, I'd been working in sort of a, a minimum wage job, I felt like there was a lot of surveillance around like, how am I doing as a mother? Or like there was this idea that my, my kid could be taken away at any moment. So I hid a lot of it. I, so when my doctor would be like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, great, fine, totally fine, everything's fine. And the focus wasn't on like, I would like to die. The focus was on how do I get this kid to stop crying? How do I get him to sleep more than you know 45 minutes at a time? Um, so that was where a lot of my focus went rather than talking about me because I assumed if he would just eat, if he would just sleep, if he just would, you know, if he just dot, 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 whatever it was, then I would feel better. Not realizing that um, it, every time I would tick off one of those boxes, okay, so we figured out the feeding, okay, so we figured out, he actually didn't sleep through the night until he was probably five years old, but we did get longer stretches. I did get longer stretches in 45 minutes. Um, I didn't feel any better. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just got lost a bit in the system. Um, and I think also too, because I was so young, people were so focused on, uh, and because he had some challenging sort of health stuff, he was born with a problem with his kidney. Like there was just a lot going on. Um, everybody's focus was just on the baby. Nobody was really paying attention to what was going on for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I hear that a lot. And I remember too going through with baby number one, I feel like once the baby comes, really the focus tends to be all about baby and mom kind of gets lost in the system. Totally. Um, so it's great to hear that your second care provider really didn't let you get lost in that, in that process. Yeah. Um, what would you say, because I know with our listeners, a lot of people are really confused about the differences between 
different conditions. So can you share a bit about the differences in signs and symptoms between, so there's baby blues, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder? So I know that's a big question, yeah. um, but, but definitely people I think are confused with what the differences really are. Yeah, and often you'll hear PPD, postpartum depression use, is kind of a catch-all to talk about all the different sort of things that can happen with our mood. Um, but you're right, there is a difference of how they show up, and, and it sometimes is a problem to, to sort of lump it all under the umbrella of, of postpartum depression because the image we have in our head of what depression looks like, like I'm crying all the time, I'm sad, I'm suicidal, I can't get out of bed. Um, we can absolutely miss some of the, the other sort of things that can happen. Um, so we're shifting now towards um, uh, different language. So a really popular sort of term that's used now is perinatal mood and adjustment disorders, which catches everything. And then you can get a lot clearer about uh, each unique sort of um, bucket within that. But baby blues isn't a part of that. So baby blues doesn't sort of get lumped into perinatal mood and adjustment disorders because it's kind of understood that most people who give birth are going to have an, a, um, some experience of overwhelm, exhaustion, uh, fatigue, crying, and that's really more hormonal. So that, and also just like huge life change all of a sudden, even if it's your second, third, um, kiddo, even if you didn't give birth, as soon as somebody hands you a baby, like it's a pretty big, pretty big adjustment. Um, so that's usually resolved itself between two to four weeks. If you did give birth, usually the onset of that also coincides with the onset of um, milk coming in. That's really common. So there's huge fluctuations to progesterone and estrogen. Um, and so that's just, you know, I can't do this, like, I need to go back to the hospital or I need my midwife to come over. Um, I'm totally overwhelmed. I'm so exhausted. I, I don't know if I can get myself through this. And then generally that resolves within two to four weeks. And that's really different from postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And I'll talk about PTSD in a second. Because um, postpartum depression is, it's, I have a whole sort of way that I talk about what happens with our mood postpartum. So I'm trying to figure out what order to sort of talk about this in. But postpartum depression shows up more like depression. And so sometimes that means um, not bonding with the baby. Sometimes that means feeling really sad, feeling like your life is over. Sometimes it shows up in anger, shows up in a lot of frustration. So you may feel totally fine and connected to your baby, but you're just so mad about everything all the time, if your partner, particularly your mom or your partner. Um, and that looks really different from postpartum anxiety, which is anxiety-based. So I tend to think of postpartum depression as sort of going low. So my mood is really low all the time. And with anxiety, I go up, I go really high. So I can't sleep, I'm agitated, I'm like bursting with energy and I don't understand where it's all coming from because I'm hardly sleeping or I'm having lots of racing thoughts or something called intrusive thoughts. So these are like scary flashes of terrifying things happening to ourselves, our babies, our loved ones. Um, the most common one is like walking downstairs with your baby, you'll get to the top of the stairs and then envision like the baby falling or you falling with the baby. Um, and you can have one or the other or both. It's also not uncommon to have both where you're feeling all those things all at once. 
Um, and that's a little bit different from postpartum PTSD. And postpartum PTSD is usually related to trauma surrounding the birth or trauma in your life that happens like to, to coincide with um, the onset of birth or immediate postpartum. And the reason I, I distinguish between those two is because PTSD affects the brain really differently from postpartum depression, anxiety. And although for sure there, it's more complicated than just like neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine and all the things you hear um, when you start talking about depression and anxiety. Um, PTSD means that like something happened, like something kickstarted that. Um, and I mean, I could talk about birth trauma forever, but it doesn't even, doesn't necessarily mean that there was a life or death scenario with the birth. It just means that at, at some point, something happened at the birth that your brain is really struggling to process. Um, so when I think about those buckets of trauma, there's physical, so something physically happened. There was like life and um, health and safety issues that came up, um, pain, unmanaged pain. There's emotional trauma, so feeling out of control, things happening too quickly, um, things really derailing from the vision that you originally had. There's sexual trauma. We know that um, people, survivors, sexual assault, sexual abuse survivors, um, there is the possibility that birth could, could re-traumatize them. I mean, it's so rare that we ask people um, you know, with vaginas to lie down and expose their vaginas to the world, um, or expose their breasts, their bodies in, um, in a C-section, uh, with complete strangers. Um, and then structural trauma. So people who experience like really intense homophobia, transphobia, racism, um, while they're giving birth, um, and feel really unsafe. And so that impacts the brain a little bit differently. But we don't talk that much about postpartum PTSD, which is unfortunate because the intervention um, and treatment should be different. It would be different than um, traditional uh, treatments for things like postpartum depression and, and postpartum anxiety. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other like much more rare things that can happen like postpartum psychosis, uh, postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and those are, uh, much more noticeable sometimes than PPD or PPA because they can cause like pretty dramatic um, behavioral changes. Yeah, no, thank you for distinguishing each of those because yeah, I think a lot of people just aren't sure. And so I think that's going to help a lot of listeners who are either pregnant or postpartum figuring out what they're feeling or maybe what friends or family are going through. Um, and I found it really interesting when you talked about PTSD in terms of specifically for postpartum, because I find as a pelvic physio, sometimes I'm the first person and I might not see them till six or seven weeks postpartum, but I might be the first person asking them if they want to debrief about their birth mm. and things start coming up. And then I'm the one kind of referring back or recommending certain resources. And I just feel, wow, like the fact that it got that far before anyone talks about it or feels you know anyone even asks them how it feels so as with your work like do you find um clients come to see you maybe for other reasons and then kind of through you know going through the layers the postpartum ptsd comes up and they didn't even know about it sometimes yeah and sometimes it comes up because they think that they are anxious and they could they could have both and and they are definitely feeling anxious but when we trace back, like, when did this start? Um, it started in the birth room. 
And so then I'm, I'll start, I start to question. And I, I want to be clear that I'm not a, a clinical diagnoser. Like that needs to be done um, through psychiatrist or family doctor. Um, but then I might start to suspect, like, I think we're actually in the bucket of PTSD. So we would switch. I, I use a type of trauma um, a therapy called EMDR. And so I, I might switch from traditional talk therapy to like, would you be willing to experiment with EMDR to help process uh, some of what happened at that birth? And then if after that, they're like, yeah, I feel a lot better. The anxiety's calmed right down. I'm like, great. Um, go <laughs> go and enjoy your life <laughs> and your baby. And hopefully we never need to do this again. Mm -hmm. And so um, you kind of touched upon it a little bit, talking about dopamine and, and different kind of reactions going on within someone. Um, can you share what really is going on kind of between postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and postpartum PTSD? Like a lot of people, there's misconceptions of like, oh, it's just hormones or they're just moody or there's another reason for this rather than actually the chemical changes going on within someone. Yeah, and I mean, I want to be really clear that I'm not, uh, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm giving like very kind of bare bones descriptions of what's happening um, neurologically, but it might be easier if we just back up for a second and talk about um, uh, the structure, the model that I work with for talking about what happens with postpartum mood, because um, the biology, the neurobiology is actually just one part of it. So all of us are sort of influenced by four major buckets when we become parents, whether or not we give birth. The first is genetics when it comes to our mood. So those of us, there, there are some genetic um, components and there was some interesting research done, I think it was out of John Hopkins University uh, that was trying to locate a particular gene and it showed up in like 86% of parents who had given birth who had uh, postpartum depression, this particular gene. And that kicked off um, a lot more interest in looking at the genetics. And now um, there's a huge global effort right now to get clearer about this genetic um, predisposition towards postpartum depression and anxiety so that we can test for it with a blood test and help people make choices um, around their mental health while they're still pregnant. Um, so that's one bucket. We have no control over our genes. We just kind of get them. I hope that like you also got some like really cool traits from your parents as well. If you if you do get the like postpartum depression gene, um, the second is the the biology pieces. And so this is looking at what happens to us hormonally. We know that there is a massive drop um, with estrogen. We know there's huge changes to progesterone when we give birth. Um, we also know that our thyroid can take a real beating um, during pregnancy and, and birth. And so I always also recommend that people have their thyroid tested because that um, can dip and that can also impact um, our mood. Um, and then there's this new emerging research around something that's called postnatal depletion, which is just what, particularly if you're nursing, just the like complete depletion of like nutrients and our like microbiome because we give so much physically when we are caring for our children. Um, and then there's also this looking, this um, exploration of uh, our neurotransmitters. So looking at things like dopamine and serotonin, and um, this is where uh, meds, so um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, this is how that supports us. So it will help us 
you know, use our serotonin more effectively so that we can relax and, and have more energy and enjoy our day a little bit more. Because a lot of the things that um, happen postpartum are not great for our neurotransmitters. So things that help support us have like healthy brains are things like getting lots of sleep, having lots of downtime, moving our bodies and getting exercise uh, in ways that feel really good. In fact, there's lots of research that shows um, that moderate amounts of exercise for low, uh, low depression, like low levels of depression is just as effective as taking an SSRI. Um, so there's lots of things that sort of interfere with like us protecting our own brains when we become new parents. Um, but that is, that doesn't answer all the questions around people who get postpartum depression, anxiety, um, who don't birth, because we know that everyone's at risk, including partners, including adoptive parents, um, surrogates and, and all of those different pieces. And that is takes us to the next bucket, which is our thinking styles. We know that those of us who are uh, more prone to uh, rumination, those of us, I use very positive language. So like those of us who are prone to negative thinking, I call that critical analysis. Those of us with heightened critical analysis skills, those of us who have strategy brains, right? We are constantly eight steps ahead, constantly problem solving, uh, putting out fires that like before, or trying to put out fires so, uh, before they even begin. Um, we are more, those of us who are prone to perfectionism are more likely to struggle with uh, a mood disorder. And then the fourth bucket is the culture of parenting. So this like Western culture of parenting we all live in. Um, that is dominated right now by this intensive mothering model, which is prescribes to us that like in order to be a good parent, you need to, and then we can insert all of the rules here, you need to like, that child needs to be nursed and breastfed, you know, until they're like four, you need to respond to them instantaneously, they should never cry for a second, you need to carry your baby, they need to eat organic, you need no screen time. So there's all these rules about what it means to be a good parent. And um, they're impossible and they're contradictory. And we can get really lost in that, in our efforts to like perform good parenting, perform good mothering. And that can really negatively our, in our uh, identity, our parental identity and, and wreak havoc on our mood. Um, yeah, go ahead, I, I heard a- No, I just, I absolutely love the layers of that answer and I'm so excited to share this because I think it, it is all stemming back to as well that so many, I feel like so many people going through this feel like they did something wrong. It's their fault. And just everything you're saying is like, no, it's not like there's so many factors and layers to this that I think a lot of listeners are going to take from this. Like, okay, this is not my fault that I'm going yeah. through this. And like what, yeah, maybe factors they never even you know, fathomed were actually a part of what they're going through. And now they're like, okay, this is making sense. Yeah. Well, and that's just mm -hmm. it, right? Like it 100%, let me be really clear to anybody who's listening and like, this feels like their story right now, not your fault, not your fault. And, and often um, when it comes to even thinking about things like you don't have enough serotonin or your brain's not using your serotonin, like how innocent is that? so innocent that your brain is just having a tough time and needs a little boost like nobody's at fault um, um, for that and then 
you know, these are the, those are the four buckets we don't have a lot of control over. And then there's just like life circumstance stuff. Like we know that um, solo parents are more at risk, uh, particularly if they don't have a good support system. Um, people who have partners and they don't like their partner that much, their partner is not really that good to them, have a tough time. People who are really struggling financially or like moving or any of those big life stressors, they're more at risk. Because um, having a baby is really stressful. And, and as much as we may take delight in our baby, and we don't always take delight in our babies, and that's okay, um, it's a huge change to your daily routine, your sense of identity. There's a huge loss of control over your time. Um, so anything that is sort of stressful on top of that, like compounds that stress. And it makes it really tough to, to navigate those systems. And so all of us are sort of caught up in this web postpartum um, in a really particular way. And some of us sail through seamlessly. We just, you know, got some good genes, had a lot on our side, and we sort of fell in love and, and, and off we went into parenting. And others of us, like me and like lots of people that I know, just enter into parenting like, like a punch in the face, <laughs> sort of how I describe it. Uh, and just need a little bit of support navigating through that uh, that particular time and with help you it is amazing what can happen in terms of um feeling better like and pretty quickly feeling better within a few weeks mm -hmm. and i think that's great because our we were talking about our, our next question and you answered i feel like you've answered it in, yeah. in a few different which is good and i just wasn't sure if there were maybe other factors so we were curious about maybe factors in pregnancy that might be a sign of an increased risk of someone who might experience any of these conditions. And you did mention a number of them just now. And then also earlier you mentioned um, in terms of survivors of sexual um, abuse or also previous birth trauma. Um, would there be other factors just so people can almost keep that in mind ahead of time, whether it's for themselves or maybe a family or a friend? Yeah, and you know, it's so interesting that when I was doing research around uh, for my MSW, I was doing some research around some of the risk factors as I was trying to build a framework for understanding postpartum mood. And I think I got up to 42 before I realized that we're all really at risk. Um, but some of the big ones that, that came up repeatedly is if you have had a previous experience with a mood disorder, you're much more at risk. So knowing when you're pregnant or when you're waiting on, on your baby to be born, um, that that's something just to bring some awareness to. How am I gonna protect my mood? And sometimes it's interesting if you had a previous experience with depression or anxiety, you've got some tools. So you're like, okay, I know what to do. I've been through this before. Um, and then sometimes it shows up very differently. And so you're like, whoa, I, was, I wasn't expecting this. Um, so, so that's a big one. Um, moving is a huge one and renovations, which is so interesting because I know so many people who with the baby coming they're like we have to move we've got to renovate um and if you're living in chaos so if you're living in a and things aren't sort of like grounded around you people really struggle with their mood um i've lived through renovations twice and i can completely understand <laughs> why that would happen yeah i find that so interesting because i've definitely noticed that over the past definitely the last year or two, um, 
majority of my pregnant clients are definitely it's renos or moving yeah. like everyone and and exactly how you said like it's just that time in life the family is growing so they're thinking of expanding but i never thought about that actually being a potential risk factor for it so i think that's really interesting for all of us to learn for sure yeah um and then for sure like history of trauma um for sure we know support systems really matter so people who, who um don't live around any of um either their biological family or their chosen family that they get along with so people who don't have like extra support to come in and, and offer you know hands-on help during the day for sure they're more at risk particularly for for being like the loneliness that can set in but then there's a bunch of stuff that feels a bit um i'm like oh who knew like if you have a history of really difficult menstrual cycles like really difficult uh like painful periods you're more at risk like so like when when you start to dig into like all of the like nitty-gritty of who's at risk like all of us could probably have at least one risk factor um so if you're starting to see a lot you're like i do have a history of trauma and i did have depression when i was in my early 20s and you know i don't live around any um of my biological family and all of my friends uh, none of them have kids. They all work during the day and they're not around and I don't really like my partner. Like when you start to see things piling up like that, for sure, I would be just really tuning in um, to what happens for you postpartum with your mood. Mm -hmm. And what would you say, what is the percentage of people who go through these different mood disorders postpartum? So kind of PPD, PPA, and then PTSD. Um, I, we don't have great stats uh, when we start to like get down to the individual diagnoses, but in the stats, I've seen so many different stats. It ranges from about 10% to 20%, and that's just of uh, people who receive support. So that number is estimated to be really, really low, probably closer to 30 or 40% um, of people who land on that scale. So again, because there's mild to severe, because um, we know that most people don't get help. Most people don't get help. It's, it's only if they are pushed or they have like knowledge of like, oh, that, that is what's happening to me. Um, uh, or if somebody sort of catches it, uh, that, that people are getting, or if it's really extreme that people are getting help. And we had a question from one of our listeners, Andra, and she was curious of when is the onset for these, um, issues postpartum like typically when would they show up and is there ever a point that someone's in the clear postpartum from any of these mood disorders i love this question yeah i love this question <laughs> um and the like the, the sort of like boring answer is that you know it could happen at any time so there are people who almost instantaneously after they give birth and become a parent fall very quickly into an intense like um, postpartum mood disorder. And so usually when that happens, the first place I'd be very curious for them to explore is biological reasons. I'm like, this is very quick onset, like very dramatic. Something I feel like something biological for sure is going on here. When it's been a traumatic birth, um, again, PTSD has, that's a different function of the brain that has more to do with um, 
um, not fully processing an event. So part of your brain doesn't know that it's over. So part of you is still living there, which is why you can have um, visceral flashbacks, uh, visual flashbacks, emotional flashbacks, um, where you're sort of going about your business, something triggers um, a, a memory and like, boom, you are right back in, in the room. And I know for me, I had, a, I had quite a traumatic birth with my, my first son. And um, uh, during the birth, the one of the nurses kept putting oxygen on me and I kept ripping it off because I didn't want the mask on. And so hissing, any hissing noise that I heard reminded me of like having the oxygen put on my face and it would like, I would have a, a memory and shiver and be like, oh, that was awful. So that would be also very sudden uh, onset. Um, but that's not always how, how it goes. And there's some really, really great research that I reference a lot by an American researcher named Linda Clark Amanqua, who was doing, um, she was investigating this exact question. What happens? How quickly do people fall into postpartum depression with black mothers in America? And she found that in most cases, um, people went through this series of, of what she called role strain, role stress and role collapse. So people were becoming parents, these women she was studying where they were becoming moms and everybody has a vision of what life as a parent is gonna be like. Um, and it never really matches up to that. And so everyone, it's very normal to experience role strain, right? Ooh, how I thought I was gonna be or what I thought parenting was gonna be like, it's not like this. And some of us can adjust out of that and some of us have a, have a tougher time. And the bigger that gap between what we thought it was gonna be like and then what it was like, puts us into the bucket of role strain. So now we're feeling badly about ourselves. Like, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be like. I don't think I'm doing a good job. I'm starting to feel really anxious all the time and it starts to pick up speed. Um, and if we don't get support there at the, at the level of sort of like role strain, we can fall into role collapse. And that's where we see PPP, PPA, um, where, we are now like, we were sort of giving up on the rule. We're like, I can't do this. Like, I don't want to get out of bed. Um, I can't stop crying. I can't stop thinking all of these scary thoughts. I'm not doing a good job of protecting my kid. And that process can take anywhere from weeks to months. Um, so sometimes people are like, I was fine until month four. I was fine until month eight. The other piece around this is that weaning, if somebody was nursing, can also trigger um, um, like mood stuff. So people get to like, you know, month 11, month 12, and then they wean. And again, if, it, if it's weaning, I'd be very curious about looking biologically to be like, okay, what's going on here? Um, they wean and suddenly they don't feel okay. We're suddenly, you know, in Canada, we have, um, many of us have 12 months of uh, paternity leave. People go back to work and they're not coping. Um, so I like to think of the postpartum period as much longer than 12 months. I don't even know why it's cut off at 12 months. Um, I don't know why, like, you know, one day you have a baby, the next day you don't. Um, they're like a, a toddler. Um, and sometimes that expands up to even, I would say, three years. I'm like, you are still postpartum if you are nursing, if you ha are changing diapers, um, if you are not sleeping at night, you're still postpartum. And so I really believe in allowing parents to decide when they're sort of out of that postpartum zone 
um, versus like just a calendar deciding when you're out of that postpartum zone. And it matters a lot because in, in Canada and in Toronto, the services for postpartum mood disorders are only offered through OHIP until 12 months. And then after 12 months, you're put into like the regular system. They're like, well, as of today, you're just regularly depressed. And um, I, I don't think that's, you know, doing a service to parents who, who need stuff specifically related to those transitions. That's so interesting. It, and I agree. I feel like there's this 12 month here. And I wonder if it does have to do with mat leave or, and now that it's been extended for some people who take it to 18 months, is that going to be then the new cutoff? And then we have so many listeners in the U.S. that they go back to work six to eight weeks after, mm -hmm. or I have a lot of um, uh, like physio and chiro and self-employed um, peers who also, even though being in Canada, are going back earlier because of, of various reasons. So I, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear how that cutoff for postpartum exists and that that should be questioned. Um, that yeah, one day you're postpartum and the next day you're not, apparently. Right, and some people are still, I mean, for sure you would know about this, still healing from their birth, you know, past that 12 month mark. They're still supporting their pelvic floor. They're still dealing with like pain from, um, uh, from birthing either, you know, from cesarean or from like stitches or things that have sort of happened to their genitals. Like to be like, no, no, like you're past that now, that's all over. This feels really unfair to, to what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned earlier at the start kind of your two different experiences with care providers. And I know recently I was talking with a local birth professional who felt she had great care pregnancy during her birth, exactly what, you know, she had hoped for. But then postpartum, she felt like she slipped through the cracks and ended with um, having PPD. And it took a long time to process it and kind of get to the bottom of it. So what would you say, what are some questions that primary care providers should be asking their postpartum clients, especially during those first six weeks? So perhaps that more people are not going to slip through the cracks. I like to use really plain language. Um, and I think that that's where care providers also need to be sort of tuning in because um, some people don't get any questions. Some parents get zero questions about how they're doing. And that, that's just shameful. I'm like, that's just a poor care provider. Um, so one of the biggest pieces is also having a care provider who's checking in, you know, past sort of like the first six weeks where you're mo most likely to get a few questions about how is your mood. Um, but those who do and, you, and are supposed to do uh, the, the Edinburgh test, which is a test that's designed to sort of clinically suss out, you know, how, how is a, a parent's mood doing? It's pretty clinical language. So it'll say like, are you having um, thoughts of hurting your baby? And, and somebody might be like, well, well, no, I'm not having that specific thought but I do have thoughts of like putting my baby, um, you know, in a cupboard and closing the door so I can't hear them cry, right? Which is not, which is a different type of thought. Or they're afraid, they're afraid to, um, to answer that question honestly because they're having something that's called an intrusive thought, which are again, those like scary flashes. And the parents will not do those things at all, but the, it's really terrifying to have those sudden thoughts. 
and they don't want to say it out loud because it's embarrassing. They're afraid it makes them look like a bad parent. They are, are frightened by it. Um, and or the, the questions will ask, the, say things like, have you, you know, how much have you been crying like over the last week? And, and some people uh, will be like, well, I've been crying, but like I'm so hormonal. So I'm not like attributing that to anything more than just hormones. I really think having a genuine conversation with with clients for care providers around like what are your days like and um, explaining things like are you having intrusive thoughts here's what they are like they are really common when you have a mood disorder um, to help normalize so that they understand what's going on and they know what to look for um, and just asking around like you know are you feeling sometimes the language around like are you feeling connected to your baby I, I don't love that again because all of the questions sometimes have a bit of a judgy tone um just asking around like I don't know questions like what are you what are you noticing about your baby or what do you like about your baby or what's driving you bananas about your baby just like normal questions that we would uh if we were talking to our friends we would say focusing it more there you'll get so much more information then if you ask, uh, if you just sort of have them tick off these like 10 questions on, on the, the uh, Edinburgh scale. And how, so I know a lot of listeners are curious about this now, is how, how do you work with clients? Like what, what are the types of clients you see and how do you kind of work with them to work through these um, mood disorders? So it depends on the client. I, I work from a really eclectic kind of place where I um, I meet cl clients where they're at and, and we sort of move forward from like what are their particular goals. What I don't do is I don't spend a lot of time going back into their early childhood, which I know is a classic sort of like therapy counseling thing. Like let's start by talking about your childhood and where did this all start? Um, I'm pretty forward facing because parents need coping and they need some support now we don't like they don't want to spend a lot of time analyzing what happened with their own parents um, and so we spent I spent a lot of time talking about building up their toolbox so let's talk about coping strategies for like when your feelings get really intense how are you gonna like soothe yourself um, and who can you call for extra support sometimes people don't have a lot of support so we explore a lot of like what's that gonna look like how are you gonna get yourself through this um, and then I also talk a lot about what I call impossible parenting. I'm like, yeah, it's impossible, right? So rather than like, how do we fix this? How do we fix you? Starting from the place of like, this is actually impossible. Like, no, the traditional methods for when people are feeling depressed and anxious, most parents don't have a lot of um, ability to, to do them. You can't like, let's get you more sleep. I get it. You're not going to get more sleep. That's not a thing. We can maximize the sleep that you are getting right now, but like for, yeah, you're going to be up in the night. Um, getting more exercise. I get it. You're not getting outside or your body's been injured or you have a kid that cries all the time. Exercise is not a thing that's going to be happening easily. That feels impossible right now. And not from a place of hopelessness, but from a place of like, um, you know, sometimes use language like, look, if you screwed anyways, <laughs> like, you get to actually do whatever you want right now. Like, what do you really want to do? Um, so starting from a place, place like that, because if we, if we turn to, 
um, a lot of the parenting advice, it is impossible. It's contradictory and impossible. We can't just tell parents that they need to like focus on sleep and like focus on like eating more when we know that their days are, are often not set up to do those sorts of um, activities. The other thing is um, I don't do a lot of written homework. So one of the most popular forms of therapy right now is um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Um, and that's something that often involves quite a lot of writing. People are asked to do things like thought records where they sort of like trace their own thought processes. Um, so I'll, I'll take a, a therapy like that and sort of break it down and make it parent friendly because I would never expect somebody with a three week old baby um, to every time they have an anxious thought to like stop what they're doing and like get out a journal and like start writing down like you know, everything that led up to that and all their hot thoughts. Um, so a lot of like pulling apart sort of classic therapeutic um, techniques to make it um, instantaneous, like under 30 seconds, um, because that's what most parents are looking for. Mm -hmm. And I think everything you're talking about is coming, I feel like, from a place of reality um, as a parent, because I, I felt like going into baby number one, yeah, we're told all these like these are the rules and this is what should happen. This is what you should do. And then you have your baby and you're like, that's not real life. Yeah. Um, and so I think I can imagine a lot of your clients appreciate that you're coming from a place of like, this is real life as a parent. How are we going to navigate this without putting these impossible kind of rules in place? Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally. Well, and also I spend a lot of time um, giving helping people give themselves permission to not like it, to actually not like this part of parenting and separating the relationship that we develop with our children, which we have a lifetime. I mean, hopefully we have a lifetime to do that from the work of parenting. And it is totally acceptable and okay to hate getting up in the night to hate like doing the same tour over and over and over again. Okay. Like take out the diapers again. Like, gotta like make formula again um it's not the same it's it's not the same and it doesn't speak to who you are as a parent because this particular stage of parenting is not your favorite right some people really love the infant stage cool but then they get to like a preteen and they're losing their minds and somehow it's seen as acceptable to have a preteen who's driving you bananas and to complain about that it's not seen as acceptable to be like ugh. I have to like do laundry again, or like I'm not really digging, like taking my crying baby for a walk. Um, but it is, it is okay. You know, in the same way that some people really dig three-year-olds and like they're two-year-olds, they're really cute, they're constantly learning, and others find that stage really challenging, the constant boundary setting. All of us, I think, have a sweet spot in parenting, like certain age where you're like, this is it. This is where my like individual strengths shine. This is where my like talents shine. This is my sweet spot. And all of us have a personal nemesis stage. Um, and it's, the earlier you kind of own that, I think the happier you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, definitely great advice. And what, because um, we do have listeners from all over Canada, US and beyond, what would be some kind of general like supports or resources or professionals people should 
be looking for or keep in mind or even consider when they're pregnant so that they know postpartum if they run into any of these issues they know who they can go to in case their primary care provider may be maybe missing these things yeah so I mean, I'm a big fan of doulas, huge fan of doulas. I know that they, there's like class stuff and there's cost prohibitive issues that come up with doulas. Um, but if you can have a doula at your birth and somebody that you're connected to postpartum and somebody to talk you through um, all the different things that you can expect from a really authentic place, uh, that can be a really critical um, uh, service provider, care provider. Uh, as you become a parent. Um, and most people who've had doulas are like, yes, I actually can't imagine what it would have been like not to have them. So for sure, that's something worth exploring. Um, ideally, having a good relationship with your healthcare provider in terms of who's doing the birth for you can be really important as well. I know that we don't always get a ton of choice with that, but finding ways to maximize that relationship um, so that you can afterwards, even if it's past you know, the, the time that you're in their care, you can go back to them and say, hey, I'm really having a tough time right now because they are often more tuned in, more connected with postpartum specific resources than say a family doctor who's like, I don't know, I have no idea uh, like where to send you around this and I know for sure you know of midwives midwife friends that I have they're like yeah sometimes people will call us back three months out and say hey I'm really struggling now and they will help get them plugged into the right uh, the right community resources and even just doing a quick search um, around like a google search I really like suggesting that people uh, join Facebook groups or like Instagram like start to follow um, people who sort of live in your community to get to know what's around, like what resources are around for me to access if I need them. Um, so those are, are some of the, the best strategies. I know that parenting, like finding your parenting people can be very challenging and uh, it's hard to make friends as an adult, at least I find it really hard to make friends as an adult. Um, so online forums, if you're not connecting with people in your immediate community, if you're going to drop-in centers or play groups, um, you're more likely, I think, to find if you need sort of blanket general advice of like, something's wrong with my mood, where do I get uh, resources locally? It's never it ceases to amaze me how many people will respond to those threads with very supportive, very loving posts of like building solidarity. And they know the best places to go. They can recommend, um, you know, here's a therapist who specializes in this. I do think having, um, if you're looking for one-on-one -on -one support, finding somebody who has some kind of specialty in that area is really helpful. Again, because of some of the reasons I said before, you don't just want to throw like classic cognitive behavioral therapy or advice like get more sleep and like, you know, have more, um, eat more walnuts and like fatty fish and things that we know are good for our brain. Somebody who can get really creative and, and adapt to the demands of new parents. And then of course, there's um, always things like naturopaths and uh, people who can offer support depending on where, I mean, it's so individual. If you have like religious organizations like tuning into like mother's groups there or parent group there, it's if you are part of a particular community, um, sort of like find, spending some time hanging out in those um, centers to see if there's parent centers. So just 
doing the quick sort of taking stock of like, what are the things that are important to me? What are the things that are important to my identity? And um, building supports that way. Does that make sense? That was sort of a like, no. answer. <laughs> no, I think that was amazing because you gave great options for online, <clears throat> excuse me, online resources as well as in person within the community. And I think both are so valuable. And I think to our parents' generation, that they didn't have the online forums and groups and resources that we have now um, and how helpful they can actually be, especially for people who are maybe more rural or more removed, um, that they can actually connect with people a, a lot easier um, for a lot of these issues and, and other parenting issues as well. And so we have a lot of listeners who may be going through this themselves, but also who know family and friends. And I've actually had clients come to me and mention their concern with a family or a friend and what to recommend. So if you know someone that you suspect is going through this, but you're not a healthcare professional or birth professional, what would be your recommendations of how they could help a friend or family member? To not minimize. So many times when people start to open up about their experiences of parenting and they'll start in really subtle ways. I'm just so tired. I'm some, I'm just finding myself really crying a lot. I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job at this. And it, it's very easy to just want to rush in with support. Like, oh, you know, I know that like they're not sleeping now, but they will, it's such a short time. They will start sleeping eventually. Um, or, oh, don't be silly, of course you're doing a good job, or, oh, all parents are anxious, new parents are always so anxious. Don't make it small, right, when people are making those sorts of comments. Just really, it goes back to the basics of offering solidarity. Yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. Um, I've been through it, if you've been through it, I know other people who've been through it. Have you talked to your doctor about this? Um, I know of a really great program where people who were said who say similar things, um, who've gone through similar experiences, really loved, and just offering empathy. Uh, that sounds really hard. This is really tough. Um, I can imagine. I can only imagine what that what that's like for you. Don't discredit how important just those simple things are. Right. You can't fix this for them. You can't fix somebody else's depression or anxiety. I wish so badly that we could, but we can't. But you can stand there with them as they're going through it. Also, don't, if they disappear, which can happen, um, they stop, start to withdraw, start not to reach out. Um, so just let them know. Let them know that you're there, even if they're not interested in talking, not interested in connecting. Um, there was some very interesting research done around a program it was a hospital program where people called um, parents with PPD who had gone to a group and then they dropped out. And a lot of the parents said that even just the phone calls, the check-in, like, hey, how you doing, made them feel not so alone in what they were going through. Um, so again, not offering to fix, not offering, not trying to figure out how to like problem solve for them. It's their problem to solve. And, and ideally, they're getting support to help them solve that problem. But just being there empathetically with solidarity, not making it small is enough. I love that. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of things in terms of pregnancy and postpartum empathy could go a long way um, in, uh, in that. And so um, is there anything else, Olivia, that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with the listeners? Just 
that it's worth reaching out for help. Um, sometimes I'll hear people say, I know, I think I have a little bit of PPD. I have a little bit of postpartum and a little bit is too much. A little bit is too much. So it doesn't have to be extreme. I'm not able to care for my baby. Um, extreme sort of mood stuff. If you have a kiddo and you are having a tough time and you are really not getting a lot of sleep and really, really anxious or really feeling like, I think I made a mistake, I'm having a lot of regret about this. Even if you are getting up and going through your day and going through the motions, it is worth reaching out to get support because there's so much help available. Whether you go the pharmaceutical route, whether you go the naturopathic route, whether you go the um, psychologist, the therapy route, or some combination of all the different supports out there, it is 100% worthwhile um, to, to, build, to build in a plan. Amazing. And thank you so much, Olivia, for being on. I can't wait to share this episode. I know Jess will not be able to wait. She'll be wanting to listen to this pretty soon. Um, just your expertise, your knowledge, and just your way of sharing information, I know will resonate with so many, so many people listening. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being on. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. On the next episode of Two Birth and Beyond, my husband, Randy, and I sit down to do a follow-up episode. We are talking about our experience with baby number two, postpartum this time around, what our struggles have been, what we have found easier than last time, how our marriage is handling it, and answering your specific listener questions on these topics. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 